Well, the Gentiles weren't plan B. This has been a part of God's eternal plan. And like we said, Abraham came 430 years before Israel. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. Grab a cup of coffee and join Colleen Tinker and Nikki Stevenson as they discuss their life after Adventism. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Nikki Stevenson. And I'm Colleen Tinker. Today we continue our walk through Galatians with a look at the first nine verses of chapter three. If you haven't listened to the previous discussions of this letter, we encourage you to go back and begin with our introduction to the series, which is episode number 146. Now, last week we concluded chapter two with these words from Paul. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. This week, we'll see Paul explain that the false teaching of righteousness coming from the law is diametrically opposed to the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Further, we'll see that faith not only brings about our justification, it is also the means by which we live righteous lives. Seeking to attain righteousness through law-keeping is more than futile. It's a rejection of the gospel of grace. Responding to God in faith for a lifetime is the supernatural life of those who've been justified by faith and regenerated by the Holy Spirit. It is God Himself, not our obedience to a particular national conditional covenant, (laughs) who works in us, perfecting us until the day of Christ. As we come to God, so we walk in Him. So join us with your Bibles and your coffee as we dip into chapter three. Mm-hmm. But before we get started, let me remind you that you can write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Visit proclamationmagazine.com to read our past and current online articles, and you can sign up there to receive emails that deliver new material and other ministry news to your inbox every Friday. You can also find a place there to donate to the ministry if you'd like to offer your financial support to the work of reaching Adventists with the gospel. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and please leave a review wherever you listen. Now my question for you, Colleen. Okay. When you were an Adventist, how did you think you were supposed to become righteous? Like, What was the method for obtaining righteousness? Oh, it was long, dreary, depressing, and hopeless, pretty much. (laughs) (laughs) Um. I believed that I had to learn to overcome sin by praying a lot and depending on the Holy Spirit. But I didn't really understand how to do that well, because it seemed like no matter how I determined I was going to eradicate sin from my life, I never could. And I remember towards my, well, actually, well into my adulthood, struggling with the sins I thought were sins, like drinking coffee. Mm-hmm. I just couldn't give it up. I felt better when I drank coffee. I functioned better when I drank coffee, and I felt like I was sinning. And it was, uh, it was very tough. And I would try to rationalize, and then I would pray, 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 and beg God to forgive me, and ask Him to please help me to just, you know, give up that habit. And maybe I'd go for a day or two, and I'd kind of walk in a fog through my morning, and then I'd drink it again because I really could function better with it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
And I also remember having similar struggles with getting the floor clean on Friday night before sundown. Mm -hmm. The real sins in my life, I wasn't even aware of, like I became aware of later. I wasn't even aware that my franticness with the kids was sinning against them. I would let myself become so frantic, so frustrated that they weren't doing what I said. And my fear of being a bad mom was so intense that I would take it out on them. Mm -hmm. And I didn't even realize that, that that was a sin. So, you know, after trusting Jesus, discovering the gospel, it changed and the Lord began to show me that the real sins of my life were not coffee and the floor washing. (laughs) In fact, He began to show me that He had made coffee, actually, and that all things were good for food. (laughs) And if I functioned better with it, maybe it's because my body chemistry responded well to caffeine. (laughs) Thank you, Jesus. So, (laughs) So, yeah, I thought I had to do a lot of self-control, a lot of praying, a lot of just giving up anything that felt pleasurable to me. And that was the the route to overcoming sin. And I didn't even completely understand what the sins were. What about you? It's interesting as I think about this, because a lot of the the words that come to mind can sound Christian to people if they're not being careful and paying attention. But I thought righteousness came by faith. But it was a magical kind of faith. Oh, interesting. So, righteousness is offered to us freely by Christ who died for us on the cross for our sins if we do the work of applying His sacrifice to our sins. So, how? how? So, it was, I believed, I had been told, and I believed that as long as I confessed my sin, then... Up in the investigative judgment, Jesus would blot it out with his blood, but he wouldn't unless I confessed it. I had to confess it. So it was like righteousness by confession and faith in his desire to apply his blood if I confess enough, all of it, and mean it. And then I also had it in my head, and I don't know where it came from, because these are ideas I had from a very young age. But I believed that if I repeated the sin that he had already covered with his blood, that he would erase it. (laughs) Oh, right. Of course. It was not a justification by faith by any means, but I thought that you grow in righteousness and in likeness of Christ through continual repentance and just convoluted ideas married to the great controversy worldview and and betraying a lack of understanding of justification and sanctification and, you know, all of the things you need to know when you're a believer. Yes. Well, you know, actually that whole thing of the confession and the having the blood applied, I did believe that too. I did believe sins wouldn't be forgiven if I didn't confess them. Mm-hmm. I think that after I left my teens and heard Maury Venden preach his revolutionary ideas, which were still very, very Adventist, but somehow eliminated all the fear of the soul-searching of the investigative judgment. I'm not sure exactly how he did that, but it kind of gave me permission not to sit and go through the litany of my sins and make sure I had confessed them. And I'm not even sure how we got to that point, because I did believe, and Ellen White did say, forgotten sins— Mm-hmm. And unconfessed sins will be held against us. Yeah. And I grew up with that belief. I also had a transition that I've never thought about until you said that, because when I came back around to wanting to practice Adventism um, in my early adult years, I think the way I got around that, because I didn't do the obsessive confessing, it was 
God is a God of grace and he knows oh. my heart. Mm-hmm. Oh, the knowing the heart. Yes. So yes, he yes. knows that my heart wants to follow him and he knows that I really just can't. And so he's there loving me mm-hmm. while I try to do my best. Making up the difference. Yeah. But I didn't know how to divorce that from the great controversy worldview. I think that it's compatible actually in a way. I do too. I couldn't divorce it either. You know, I I think most of my life until I really understood the gospel was just one big pile of cognitive dissonance. I had no idea how to be good. God wouldn't make me good, even though I asked Him to. And what was up with that? You know, if I wanted to be good, why wouldn't He make me good? And I couldn't get rid of my temptations, which of course involved coffee. And I just had no idea how to please God, except to keep trying. Mm-hmm. It was all about trying. So it ended up being, am I sincere? And I figured he would know I was sincere. Yeah. And you know, it felt like a setup for failure, mm-hmm. which brought seasons in my life where I was just mad at him. Like, come on, you want me to do yeah. all of this perfect living and you keep throwing these hurdles at me. Yes. <laughs> what did I do to you? <laughs> So it was also a complete lack of knowing who God was. Oh, yes. That's what I keep thinking. I didn't know who he was. No. And instead of being mad at him, I would spiral into mad at myself. I would go into spirals of depression and anxiety that were very self-destructive. I mean, I didn't physically self-destruct, but mentally I did to the point where I could hardly engage myself in my life because I would be so bound up in feeling guilty and shame, and I need to confess, and I need to get better, and I need to not be tempted. Boy, we sure sound like um, pagan Gentiles, don't we? Don't we? Cut off from God and without hope in the world. I felt that. Mm. I did. I felt that, although I believed I had the truth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How liberating was that truth? Yeah, I never felt very connected to the good news title until I became a believer, and I was like... <gasps> really is good news. (laughs) I get it. (laughs) Yes, so true. Well, Nikki, I I can't get over how much this section we're looking at today completely exposes and disproves Adventism, if you really are ready to believe it when you see the words. I'm also aware that a lot of people with our background believe they read the words and know what they mean, and don't even realize they're reading the words through a worldview. But I want us to at least try. So, would you read verses 1 through 9 out of chapter 3 of Galatians for us? And if you have an Adventist background, or even if you have a, quotes, legalistic, fundamentalist Christian background that wasn't Adventist, listen to these words as if you've never heard them before and see what the words actually say. We're going to think, we're reading them in context, they mean what they say, the grammar, the vocabulary, normal rules of reading a book. Listen to Nikki Reed. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, before whose eyes Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law, or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. 
Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Now, I confess that as an Adventist, this would have seemed a little bit muddy to me. Even though the words mean what they say, Paul starts this in a way that I was taught was rude. He starts by addressing the Galatians as what? Foolish. Okay, what does he mean? That they're foolish. Yeah. This word doesn't mean intellectually stupid. Oh, no. This is a spiritual word. They're not using their discernment. They're not using their insight. They're not using what they know about the gospel. And it was kind of fun for me to just look up a couple or three other verses where the word foolish is used, and we can kind of get the context of other people, like Jesus saying the word foolish and Paul saying it in other settings, just to get a sense. In Luke 24, 25, this is one of those favorite passages for me, because I didn't understand as an Adventist, that the Psalms really taught us about Jesus. But this is where Jesus is talking to those two people he met on the road to Emmaus. And this is what it says in Luke 24, verse 25. And he said to them, Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now, he's not saying to his disciples that he's speaking to that they were intellectually stupid. He's not insulting them. But he's saying, all that the prophets have spoken. This is in the context of him explaining what the Bible had said about him and of his death and resurrection. He loves them. This is not an insult, but he's saying, you're foolish. You've been blinded. You don't see what's in front of you. And Paul says in Romans 1.14, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. And he's talking about speaking the gospel to people, wise and foolish, people who suppress the truth, people who already are open to the truth, but he has to speak the truth to both the wise and the foolish. And 1 Timothy 6, 9, the word foolish isn't in this particular passage, but it's interesting, the descriptive words are here. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. So, he's talking to people who desire things that are opposed to the righteousness of God, and he's calling that desire foolishness. I mean, he's, he's describing foolishness. And finally, this passage from Titus 3, 3 to 5, for we ourselves were once foolish disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So, Foolishness is not an intellectual condition. In fact, he expected them to understand all that he had already taught them. But isn't it interesting that he's leading? And the context here, Nikki, is what's Galatians about? He's contending with the Judaizers who are trying to bring the law into the church. And he's calling them foolish for being vulnerable to that teaching. He's already taught them the gospel. They're being foolish to look back to the law. 
he goes further. He says, you're foolish. You're foolish. Who has bewitched you? That's right. So the foolishness is that they have allowed themselves to be captured by false teachers. Yes, exactly. And, And this isn't just mistaken learning. No. This is evil. It's interesting. I was uh, listening to S. Lewis Johnson exposit this passage, and he said that the word underlying bewitched is a word that describes magic practices, and it's it can be literally interpreted, who turned an evil eye on you and caused you to do something evil? It's evil what they're being taught to do. But they're responsible for responding to it because yeah. he calls them foolish. And then the answer to all of this You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? That meant something. I remember reading this before going, what does that have to do with this? Were the Judaizers saying Jesus wasn't crucified? But this is very consistent with Paul's writing. It takes me back to his passage in Colossians chapter 2. Yeah. In verses 13, he says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. So they were Gentiles. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them having triumphed over them through him. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of which is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. This is clearly all tied together. Mm -hmm. The law has been taken out of the way. The condemnation has been taken out of the way. Christ on the cross publicly did this. Yes. And it's interesting that that publicly displayed, the word behind that is like putting it on a placard, putting it on a billboard. Those Galatians had not been in Jerusalem to see Jesus hanging on the cross, and yet Paul had so clearly explained the gospel to them, had shown them from Scripture, which hadn't been their Scripture before Paul taught them, but he showed them the Word of God, and the Holy Spirit convicted them of that truth, and they knew as surely as if they had stood on Golgotha that Jesus had died for their sins. They had been born again because they had believed him. The Holy Spirit had convicted them of that truth and let them know it was real. They knew who he was and what he had done. And here they're being bewitched into the evil of turning back to the law. And I know how extreme that sounds. But you know what? The law that Paul is talking about is the entire Mosaic Covenant Not only that, as we talked about last week, he's talking to them about any work that they do by which they think they'll please God in the law or not, just works of law, general works of law. We can't decide behaviors that are righteous that will recommend us to God. He's saying, you have to trust God and you have to put it out of your head that you can just (laughs) get his sympathy on the basis of your sincerity or your self abnegating behaviors, or I'm going to give up that piece of pie for Lent. He's saying, you have to trust Jesus, and you know what he's done. So, for them to understand that everything that the cross meant, and to understand that they were in the church 
they were saved in the uncircumcision of their flesh. I realize Colossians is later, but it's the same teacher. Absolutely. They were not required to be circumcised before they were born again. They started by faith. And that's the point he's going to make as he develops this passage. They don't have to take the law up to be part of their righteousness. It's just not logical. It doesn't make any sense. And Mm -hmm. I love his apologetic way in the next verse. He says, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. When I see only thing, I think, okay, this is important. Yeah. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? It just makes me think of an apologist who skillfully asks the right question Mm -hmm. to betray a person's logical fallacies and and the ways that they're being deceived because the answer is obvious. It's easily forthcoming, but when you hear it, you know, like when they said, do you believe you have to keep the Sabbath to be saved? No. If you leave the Sabbath, will you lose your salvation? There it is. There it is. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that he, in this passage, will ask six different questions of them to try to drive this point home. And, And a question is something that appeals to their memory or to their experience. And you know, we know already that we never prove Scripture by our experience. There are people who try to do that. You know, they'll say, well, I... I had this experience or this feeling or this dream, or I saw two hummingbirds and I knew it was the Lord. You know, this is not how we prove Scripture. We test our experience by Scripture. We don't test Scripture by our experience. So, what Paul is doing here is he's not testing Scripture by the Galatians' experience, but he's asking them to remember what has actually happened to them. These are people who've been born again. And, you know, if you've been born again, you know it. Yeah. You know how you went from darkness to light. You know how you went from death to life. You remember that, let's say it, experience. And even though it's based in objective reality, objective fact, the entire process of being born again, believing and being born again through the Word of God is described in Scripture. So that when you have that experience, Scripture lets you know what it is. And he's reminding them, let's go back to that. You've been here. And according to Ephesians chapter 1, you don't have that born again experience until you believe the true gospel. That's right. So if they were in fact born again, then they did know the true gospel. And that's what he's taking them back to. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? And it's exactly what you just referred to, Nikki, that passage in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. When we hear the gospel of our salvation and believe, we are marked in him with the Holy Spirit, who is a seal and a promise, a guarantee of what is to come. There's a sequence, and he's reminding them of that, and he's saying, how did you receive the Spirit? Was it because you were trying to be the best little Gentile you could be? Or was it because you were trying to keep the Sabbath and get circumcised? Or was it something else? And they knew. They they, knew the answer. They They knew knew the the answer. answer. So, he follows up. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? This is so consistent with Paul in all of his letters. His gospel never changes. He doesn't get progressive truth. (laughs) (laughs) God gave him the gospel and he spent his whole life preaching it. Mm -hmm. He has made clear in his letters 
all over the New Testament that it is God who works in us. And just like he says in Colossians, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And he says in 1 Thessalonians, he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. This is after he calls them to sanctification. And then he says, God will do it. He says in Philippians 1, 6, for I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. This is a consistent thing across the board. The way you start is the way you walk, and it's the way you finish, and it's through faith because of the power of God in your life, at work, in you. So true. It made me think of a person starting a hike at the bottom of a mountain and entering a trailhead, expecting to arrive at a completely different peak. You start by faith, but now we're going to get over here through works. Yeah. You can't get there from here. Mm -mm. And Paul, by saying, are you so foolish, there's that word again, spiritually undiscerning, that having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Well, we could say, what does he mean by the flesh? He's not saying the law. But the fact is, that's exactly what he's saying. Are you being perfected by the law? Because the law dealt with the flesh. By works of the law, no one is counted righteous. The law was given to point out and increase sin, to make people aware of their curse of death, which the law declared was the sentence of anyone who broke it. So what Paul is really saying here is, it's foolishness. What are you thinking? You can't go back to the law now that you've been made alive by the Spirit, The law was dealing with your flesh. You are now alive in the Spirit, and it is the Spirit who deals with your flesh now. Because Jesus' death and blood has taken care of your sin, He is the one who now deals with your flesh. Don't go back to the law. That's hopeless. I love what one commentator said about this verse. He said, The Judaizers, in preaching a message of law obedience to the Galatian Christians, caused these latter to abandon the position of grace and put themselves in the sphere of law, both that of the Judaizer system of legalism and that of the Old Testament economy. Because there was no provision in the Mosaic economy for an indwelling spirit who would sanctify the believer as the believer trusted him for that work, the Galatians were turning away from the teaching and from the reality of the ministry of the spirit in the life of the believer in this dispensation of grace, and were starting to depend upon self-effort in an attempt to obey an outward legalistic system of works. So his point that they're going back to the old covenant, the Mosaic law, where there is no provision of an indwelling spirit, it's a rejection. And look, he's already said in the first chapter that by entertaining these false teachers, they're abandoning the God who called them. That's our father. The father calls. And then he says, if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. There's the son. Mm-hmm. And now he's saying they've begun by the Spirit, but now they're turning away from the Spirit and trying to earn favor through works of the flesh. That's a rejection of the Spirit. You have the full Trinity here being offended oh, such by this point. false gospel. And you know, this is not just the Galatians. I think this is why this is so intense for me. It's not only the cults. Adventism definitely teaches, overtly teaches, that you have to keep the law to be righteous. And we'll get to some quotes from Ellen in a minute. But the fact is, a lot of people who are evangelical Christians who really do believe Jesus died for their sins, still are guilty of pulling the law along with them. 
it's a terrifying thing, it seems like, to a lot of Christians to think that Jesus has fulfilled the law and we're no longer under it. It's no longer a rule of faith and practice for the church. I can almost hear them saying, well, how are you going to make sure people know how to be good if you don't have the law there? And I want to say, Jesus told us in John 16, that when the Holy Spirit came, He would convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Now, that's never apart from the whole counsel of God, the entire Bible. But when we are born again, what that author said is so true. The born-again experience is something that can only happen on this side of the cross. It can only happen after Jesus' blood paid for all sin and His resurrection has broken death. This is how the church is different from Old Testament Israel. And I know I've run into a lot of confusion with people who are Christians who aren't sure how to explain the difference between the spiritual life of the church or the true believer and the true believers in the Old Testament and they want to use words like, well, everybody's regenerated. They can't have faith if they're not regenerated. And I want to say, okay, that is true. Nobody has faith without the intervention of God because we're born sinners. God gives us the faith to believe as he did Abraham. But the church on this side of the cross, people who've trusted the gospel, the finished work of Jesus, he indwells us with his spirit. And that's new. That's the unique gift of the new covenant. And that was promised in the Old Testament that a time would come when he would put his spirit in us and give us a new spirit and cause us to walk in his ways. Jesus told his disciples, the spirit's with you now, but he will be in you. Yeah. And that's new. And we can't insult him by turning back to the old covenant that made no provision for the indwelling spirit. If we turn back to the law, we're saying, I still can fight my sin with my willpower and with my desire to be good. I can show God that I want to be good. No, no, we can't. (laughs) We can only trust Him and hide under the, the reality of His finished work and say, Father, receive me because of your Son. And I know if this is new to some listeners, it's generating a lot of questions And, you know, Paul anticipates those questions, and we'll get to some of those answers as we move through even this chapter. He he says in verse 19, why the law then? Mm -hmm. And he has to do this in Romans as well. He explains there is a lawful use of the law on this side of the cross. That's right. So we look at verse 4 then, where Paul says to these Galatian believers, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Now, here, he's not being specific, but we know that believers suffer. And I think I can say to most of us who have left Adventism for the Lord Jesus, we lose a lot. We do suffer, even if we're still alive and living in a free country, even if we have enough to eat, we do suffer for the Lord. We lose family, we lose connections, we lose social structures, we lose respect from people we respected. Whatever it is that the Galatians have lost, we know they've lost things. And we know that they were Gentiles, and so they probably lived with other people who had many, many gods. That's true. And the people who who became Christian and who rejected all of their gods were seen as a cult. That's right. And even atheists, I believe. They were called atheists. So certainly they did endure an element of that Mm -hmm. after coming to faith. And now Paul is saying, did you go through all that for nothing? 
<laughs> like, why are you going back to something observable, like works of the law, deeds of the flesh? And then in five, he continues this thought. So then does he, another question, who provides you with the spirit and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? This is Ephesians again, isn't it? Yes. Ephesians 1, when when they heard the word of truth and believed, this is their born again moment. The spirit comes into them and causes them to be born again, indwells them. And we know in Ephesians chapter 2 that God gifts them and gives them specific work. And like you said earlier, we know it's happening. Yes. We know this is a reality mm-hmm. when we're transferred from that darkness and into the kingdom of the beloved son. And this was early in church history. So there were amazing things happening that were confirming God's message and messengers. Yes. The apostles, we know, Paul and Peter both, we see this in the book of Acts, were performing miracles that were like the miracles Jesus performed. God gave them this ability to do sign gifts among the new believers to show this gospel is from God. This is the same power that was working the Lord Jesus. Even if there were other kinds of signs among these early believers, and we don't know exactly what he's referring to, but we know that he is saying, if there are signs among you, this is because the Holy Spirit is among you. He is giving you the confirmation of this message. And it's important to point out that these first believers did not have the written scriptures. They may have had some access, if they had access to synagogues, to the written Old Testament, but there was no New Testament written yet. The words of the apostles were the words of God to them, and God made sure he confirmed their words to these new believers in ways they could understand prior to the written word, which he tells us is alive. And we can know that God was not confirming the false gospel of the Judaizers. That's so the right. contrast, did all of this come about because you were keeping the law or considering it? <laughs> <laughs> or was this because you heard with faith? Yeah, they hadn't even had the law in their minds when Paul first preached to them. And I want to say, this reminds me of something too, and with these questions that he's asking them, in taking them back to those first moments when they believed the gospel and experienced the new life in Christ. If you're listening to this and you feel like your life has become complicated since leaving Adventism and you just aren't sure what to think about everything around you and how can you know which voice to listen to, you can go to God's Word and you can ask Him to remind you what's true. And one thing I've discovered is that when we go back and talk to somebody about how we knew the gospel and how the Lord brought us to life and share that with somebody, it's like, there is a confirmation that's completely new. Have you noticed that, Nikki? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and when we ask people to tell their faith stories at the FAF weekend, we discover that as they write these out, it's like a whole new, oh my goodness, how could I ever have doubted? Yeah. I, my life is new. <laughs> yeah, and it blesses the entire church to hear it. Actually, yeah. it reminds me of an Andrew Peterson song. You, y'all should look it up. It's called I've Seen Too Much. Uh-huh. And it talks about how this is a hard a hard life, you know, taking up your cross. But we've seen too much. Where else can we go? Where else can we go? And Paul is reminding these people of that. Mm-hmm. It's such a wonderful thing. We can follow this example. So then we move in verse 6. Verse 6 is just a quote from Genesis 15, 6. And that quote, Nikki? 
Even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. What does that tell us? Well, righteousness comes through faith, period. Period. And this is a quote from the first person in the Bible that we're allowed to understand how he came to faith. God called Abraham out of paganism. We learn in Genesis 12 that he and his father Terah and his brother Nahor were called out of Ur. And we learn in the book of Joshua that they had worshipped other gods, contrary to what Ellen White said. Ellen White said that God protected Abraham from idolatry. No, no. Joshua is very clear. He called a pagan out of Ur and Abraham believed and followed. And in Genesis 15, 6, when God makes the covenant with Abraham and he tells him, I'm going to make you a blessing. I'm going to give you seed, land, and blessing, and all the world will be blessed through you. And Abraham, whose wife was barren, who had nothing but a servant Eliezer as a possible heir of his life's goods, he believed God. And we learn in Romans 4 that in spite of the deadness of his own body and the deadness of Sarah's aged body, he believed God, believing that God could create something out of nothing if necessary. And that faith where Abraham believed God is what God credited to him as righteousness. And this becomes the prototype of everybody in the history of the entire world who Hmm. believes and is saved. We are credited with righteousness when we believe God and put ourselves completely at his mercy. And this is 430 years before the law? Yes, Yeah, 430 years before the law, and we're going to learn that later in this very chapter. So, Paul throws this in here as he's asking these Galatians, who has bewitched them and how have they been so foolish as to think they should look back to the law? And he says, remember Abraham, he wasn't a Jew. (laughs) He believed God, and this was before he was circumcised. So, you remember Abraham, you do not need the law to be counted righteous. So then he says, therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. That was a big deal. That was a big deal in the church. That was a big deal when Jesus walked the earth. He had a conversation with, was it the Pharisees or the Sadducees? (laughs) In John chapter Uh 8, beginning in verse 39, they said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you're seeking to kill me, a man who's told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. (laughs) You are doing the deeds of your father. And then in verse 44, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he's a liar and the father of lies. So we see that how we respond to truth determines whether or not we are children of Abraham. Now, I want to say in here, it's true that Abraham has genetic sons. Yes. As well as spiritual sons. That's right. And I believe God has a place for both of them and a plan for both of them. The church is grafted into Abraham's seed through Christ, 
That's not right. Moses. That is so important, Nikki. And you know what Paul is really saying, since the issue here is the law and the Judaizers trying to put these Christians back under the law, the real issue here is he is saying the idea of going back to the law, the bewitching of the works of the law is coming from the father of lies is coming, not from the truth, not from the reality that Abraham knew when he believed God, and God credited that to him for righteousness. It's believing the lie that the works of the law can add anything to the finished work of Christ. That was what made those Sadducees and Pharisees and scribes that Jesus talked to in John 8 so blind. They refused to see that Abraham's righteousness was through belief in God alone. And they were so upset that Jesus was coming along and saying, you have to trust God. And he sent me. I'm the one you're looking for. No, they liked their life. They liked their legal system. They liked their traditions and their food and their Sabbaths. And Jesus is saying, wait a minute. That's a deception. Your eyes are on the wrong thing. Don't be blinded. Don't be foolish. And that's even more so for these Galatians because Jesus has already been portrayed to them as crucified and they know it. Don't allow the law to blind you. So in verse 8, this is such an interesting way he is referring to the inclusion of the Gentiles, which is foreseen in the Old Testament, which not everybody saw clearly until it actually happened after Jesus went back to heaven and sent the Holy Spirit. But he is showing that Scripture had foretold this, and he says, the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, let's say it another way, without the law— The scripture preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. Well, what's the significance of saying it was preached to Abraham as a way of saying the Gentiles would be included by faith? What what is that connection he's making? Well, the Gentiles weren't plan B. Right. This has been a part of God's eternal plan. And like we said, Abraham came 430 years before Israel. Yep. So they have an eternal purpose. Yes. In God's plan. And Abraham was not a Jew. Mm-mm. Abraham was not circumcised yet when he believed God. It's so interesting. And Romans 4 really develops this. But Abraham believed God as a displaced expatriate Mesopotamian. He's out there in the place where God led him. And God is saying, I'm going to bring your descendants back to this place. And he even lets him know in Genesis 15 that they're going to be enslaved for 400 years before he brings them back. And he says, Abraham believed God. And so here Paul is saying, Abraham's belief in God preceded his being circumcised, which occurs two chapters after the covenant, and it preceded any existence of the nation of Israel. Abraham himself was a foreshadowing of the inclusion of the Gentiles into faith in God through Jesus. You know, on a side note, I was pretty fascinated with the fact that he personifies scripture here. And I went and I looked on Precept Austin to see if they explained that personification of the scriptures, the scriptures foreseen that God would justify the Gentiles. This is what I found. They said, This personification is a figure of speech expressing the thought 
that God's divine foresight is expressed in the scriptures. It is notable that the Jews had a familiar question they would ask. What did the scriptures foresee? The Judaizers would have been familiar with this saying. And so, personifying the scriptures was a common Jewish figure of speech, because scripture is God's word. When it speaks, God speaks. So, Paul is using this common way of speaking that the Judaizers would have been familiar with. And he's saying, basically, what did the scriptures foresee? They foresaw the inclusion of the Gentiles from way back with Abraham. (laughs) Nikki, don't you love being a Gentile? I do. (laughs) After having believed we were spiritual Israel and supposed to keep the law because Israel had the law. Yeah. This is amazing. And we can call Abraham our true father in faith, which is how Paul ends this little section. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. I love that he calls Abraham the believer. (laughs) I think that's great. And it's such a a wonderful bookend here. You have the Judaizers who are trying to tie the church to Moses. And Paul is saying, nope, we are tied to Abraham. Let's go back farther. Let's go back (laughs) to the beginning. Let's go back to that unconditional covenant. Don't get hung up on Sinai, which was a conditional covenant for Abraham's ethnic descendants, his physical descendants. Let's go back to Abraham, who's the father of the spiritual descendants, whether they're circumcised or not. Let's go to the unconditional covenant. It's the answer to his first question, the only thing he wanted to find out from them. (laughs) Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And we are children of Abraham, descendants of Abraham, if we believe God and trust the finished work of Jesus. And that is so much bigger than just saying, okay, I now know intellectually what I can believe. We become the adopted, born-again children of God when we trust in Jesus and the gospel of His finished work of dying for our sins according to Scripture, being buried and being raised on the third day, breaking the curse of death according to Scripture. And the miracle is that God counts us righteous with the righteousness of God Himself when we trust Jesus. It's not by works of law. It's not by works of flesh. But when we believe God, as Abraham did, we are counted as Abraham's descendants and as children of God. And if you haven't experienced this, please consider what Jesus has done for you and trust Him. If you have questions or comments for us, write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Visit proclamationmagazine.com to read our past and current online articles. You can sign up there to receive emails that will deliver new material and other ministry news to your inbox every week. You can also find a place there to donate to the ministry if you'd like to offer your financial support to the work of reaching Adventists with the gospel. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and please leave a review wherever you listen. And join us next week as we examine verses 10 through 14 and consider Paul's words regarding the nature and curse of the law. We'll see you then. 